0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6 and reading verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. We are engaged at the moment in considering the meaning of this phrase, the wiles of the devil. The apostle exhorts us to so be clothed with the power of God that we may be able to withstand these wiles of the devil. And we've seen already that these wiles are manifested in many different ways. There are certain general respects in which the devil has manifested these wiles throughout the running centuries, certain big movements in the church, and we've already considered them. But we are now engaged in dealing with this matter from a much more personal, individual standpoint. There is no end to the ways in which the devil attacks the church and God's people. He may attack them as a whole or in masses, and then he comes and he attacks us one by one. And we are considering this more individual, personal Attack of the devil upon us as it comes to us along three main routes. The mind, first of all, and then more in the realm of experience, and then thirdly, uh, we hope to consider it in the realm of practice and conduct and behavior. But at the moment, we are looking at it as regards the attacks which the devil makes upon our minds. And this, of course, is in many ways the most prominent theme which is to be found in the New Testament epistles. It is very largely because of the attacks of the devil upon the minds of the early Christians that these epistles were ever written. Clearly, this is, of all methods and roots, the one which we would expect the enemy to adopt uh, most frequently. Here is, after all, the controlling power in men. And if we go astray with respect to our minds and our understanding, it is obvious that we shall go astray in every other respect. So the devil makes a very definite attack upon us in this particular direction. And we've started considering this. Now, we spent most of our time last Sunday morning in considering the attack that comes from the line of what Paul calls, in writing to the Colossians, you remember, in the second chapter philosophy and vain deceit. And never was there a time when the warning against that was more urgently needed than the present time. Philosophy and vain deceit, the question of ultimate authority, the basis on which we stand. Put in uh, one phrase, perhaps we can put it like this. The question we have to ask ourselves is, when we come to the Bible, do we come to discover whether it is true or not? or whether believing that it is true because it is the word of God, are we only concerned about its meaning. Now, there is a very good way of dividing this matter. Those who approach these things philosophically, they come to discover what is true here and what isn't true. They sit in judgment upon it, and they decide that certain things are not true. They reject them. That's the danger of philosophy. Well, we don't stay with that, but we should come to the Bible... Knowing that it is true, and our only business should be to try to discover the meaning. The moment you think that you can decide and determine what is true and what isn't, you've already succumbed to the wiles of the devil. Very well, we've considered that, and we just glanced also at the terrible danger that arose very early in the church uh, along the line of some esoteric knowledge, some Vague admixture of philosophy and mysticism, the kind of thing the apostle was referring to partly in that first chapter of the first epistle to Timothy, which we read just now, and to which he refers again in the last chapter of that epistle, and, of course, especially in writing to the Colossians. Very well. We now then continue. And I want to suggest another heading this morning in this respect, which uh, is very similar to the last one, and yet it is... uh, Essentially different. Now, it is possible for people who have avoided the first danger, this danger of coming with their philosophy and imposing it upon the book, it's possible that a man may be quite free from that, and he does recognize this as his sole authority, and he does desire to submit himself to this and seek nothing but the meaning, taking for granted the truth it's still possible for such a man to go astray. Well, how, says someone, well, in this kind of way. The danger of becoming theoretical in our whole attitude towards this precious knowledge. Now, I must repeat again what I said last Sunday, that these particular temptations are, of course, those to which the more intellectual, able type of person is subject. It can happen to all, but it is the particular danger of those who have got minds and who desire understanding and who want to grow in knowledge. The devil, knowing us as he does, always suits the particular form of temptation just to our exact mentality and to our whole position. So he comes to people who really want to know these are not the people who don't read the scriptures and who don't read anything else and who say, oh, nothing matters but my experience. He doesn't bother them about this, but those who rarely do want to grow and to develop, he comes to them and he says, yes, of course, you're, you're perfectly right. And What you need and everybody else needs is more and more and more of this knowledge. Now, he presses that so far that in the end they get into a condition in which their whole relationship to truth is purely theoretical and academic. Let me put it like this. It's a terrible thing, this, and a terrible danger, that we should become more concerned about and interested in our intellectual knowledge of Christian truth than in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. That's the danger. And, of course, the devil comes with all his wiles, and if he can persuade us to come to this condition, he is more than satisfied. In other words, it is the failure to realize that the ultimate end, uh, ultimate end of all knowledge. knowledge is to bring us to a knowledge of the person. We are not to stop at the knowledge itself. But this is a very real danger. Or let me put it in another way. There is a terrible danger of our believing the doctrines concerning God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, rather than to have a simple faith in the three blessed persons. There, of course, is great doctrine, and it's essential we should know the doctrine. We can't put too much emphasis upon that. But, you see, the moment we do that, the devil comes and he presses us to this point in which we are only interested in the doctrines and we've lost the person. We've got nothing but a body of theoretical truth. In other words, we've virtually turned Christian doctrine into a body of philosophy. And our relationship to the person may be entirely dormant. Now, this is the thing which I'm anxious to impress upon your minds this morning. In other words, it is one of the manifestations of that lack of balance which we were considering a fortnight ago. It is the danger of becoming increasingly intellectual and theoretical and to that extent detached, to become entirely objective so that you approach all this great and glorious truth as you'd approach any other truth any other kind of teaching. And I say this vital, all important relationship to and enjoyment of the person is entirely lost. Now, I could illustrate this danger very easily, unfortunately, in the long history of the church. It's happened so often. After periods of revival, you've had a period of a dry, arid kind of scholasticism, in which people were very interested in their theoretical understanding of the truth, but God had been lost and the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't known personally. There are manifestations of this in the church at the present time. I must be careful. I mustn't mention countries nor anything else. But you see, it's possible for us to have such an intellectual interest in the truth that we even stop praying. I have known certain very orthodox branches of the Christian church in which they don't hold prayer meetings at all, and have ceased to be evangelistic in their preaching. It's all teaching, nothing but teaching. A real concern for souls has gone. And I say even the realization of the utter absolute need of prayer without ceasing has disappeared. They're living entirely in the realm of the intellect, and their whole interest in the truth is a theoretical one. As if Christianity were just believing and accepting a number of propositions. It's a terrible danger. It's afflicted every branch of the church. And of course, it is because of this very danger that you get the various reactions in the history of the church. I mean, this kind of thing. There is no doubt at all, but that uh, monasticism and the feeling that you must get apart and go out of the world and uh, become a monk or a hermit or an anchorite, it all arose against a reaction against this danger of a barren intellectualism. Suddenly a man realizes, but this has all been some point of view I've got, and it's purely a matter of the mind. There's nothing in my life. And he feels, well, there's only one thing to do. I must get right away. Mysticism arises, as I showed recently, in exactly the same manner. And thus people swing from one extreme to the other. They're all equally bad. All extremes are bad. But it is one of these, this is one of these very great dangers the danger of becoming too theoretical and abstract. Now, let me be very practical and put it like this The moment you begin to find yourself regarding this truth as just a subject for study, you've already succumbed to the devil. This is, of course, the peculiar danger of uh, certain types of persons. The danger, I say, of regarding the Bible is just a textbook. I'm always made to shiver in a spiritual sense when a man comes to me and says, you know, I'm a great Bible student. I'm frightened whenever I hear that. Now the man says it, of course, because he expects that it'll please me. But it doesn't, it alarms me always. I'm a great Bible student. Oh, but you say, surely you want people to be students of the Bible. Yes, I do. But not in that way. Every man should come to this because it is the bread of life. It's the food of the soul. It is something which is essential to our well-being. Ah, oh, but when a man comes, and in this glib where I'm a Bible student. He tells me all about himself. He's got the purely theoretical and academic approach. He's studying the Bible. He's a student of the Bible. It's a terrible thing then. And of course, when you have examinations on scriptural knowledge, it becomes ten times worse. I've often said this, I want to repeat it again. I would almost be prepared to say that it is sinful to have examinations on biblical knowledge. Because you're encouraging this purely theoretical approach. Do I know the books of the Bible? Do I know how to analyze them and classify them? That's not the way to approach this book. This is God's word, which is meant to feed the whole soul. Must always be applied. I must never stop at the theoretical and at the intellectual. And I'm jeopardizing the highest interests of my soul if I do so. Well, it follows, doesn't it, that this danger which we are dealing with is peculiarly the danger of preachers, men like myself. Theological students, terrible danger we are exposed to, all of us who handle this word and who teach it. I would say once more, what I'm profoundly convinced about, my experience confirms it more and more. It's one of the most dangerous things in the world to be a preacher and an expositor of this book. There's only one thing that I know of that is more dangerous than to be a preacher, and that is to be a lay preacher. And that, of course, because he doesn't have to face the difficulties of the preacher, the man who is the pastor and the minister, and whose whole life is this. The lay preacher is in an infinitely more dangerous position. He's got privilege without responsibility. He can be detached. doesn't matter. Not so the preacher. I'm not minimizing the danger of the preacher, nor the the student, but it is still greater in the other case. This awful danger of professionalism, This theoretical, academic approach where the Bible becomes nothing but a book in which a man finds texts for sermons, and he begins to read his Bible in that way, always looking for a new sermon or for a text. God have mercy upon the man who's got into that state. That's an utter abuse of the Bible. That's the most terribly dangerous condition a man can get into. But let me say this, it isn't only something which applies to the preacher, to the teacher, It applies to you, my friends, as you listen. You can listen in a theoretical manner. You can begin to listen as an expert. You can listen in this purely intellectual way. And the moment we are in that condition, on the one side or the other, I say we are obviously succumbing to the wiles of the devil. Let me sum it up by putting it like this. I'm dealing with the awful danger of ceasing to come under the power of this truth. The moment you cease to be under its power, you've already become a victim of the devil. Now then, I say, I apply that to myself as the preacher. If I can study this book without being searched and examined and humbled, without being lifted up and made to praise and to feel as much of the desire to sing when I'm alone in my study as when I'm standing in this pulpit, I'm in a bad state. This is the truth of God. It is the power of God. And we must ever feel its power. And it applies, I said, to the listening to the truth. If you are able to come to these services and to go away without having felt the power, well then, I'm failing miserably, and so are you. If it's just a matter of intellectual entertainment, given a certain amount of knowledge, seeing this exposed and that, or this thing divided and explained and and the truth set forth, and if it stops there, I say it's a terrible thing. Uh, If it doesn't come to you and make you feel uncomfortable, if it doesn't make you realize your deficiencies, your unworthiness, your failures, if it doesn't expose hidden secret things in your heart, if it doesn't make you feel I've got to pull myself together, I've got to rise up, I've got to do something about this. If it doesn't ever move you and thrill you and make you feel like shouting in praise, well then I say, it's a dangerous state to be in. But that's what the devil will try to do. Oh, yes, of course you must. The more you know, the better, and study it and so on. And you do it, and you're also one-sided and intellectual and theoretical. You've never felt the power. And if anybody's in that state this morning, I say, let him repent. Let him realize that he's in one of the most dangerous conditions imaginable. His conscience perhaps has been seared with a hot iron. If you can listen to this truth without being terrified at times, well then I say there's something wrong with you, especially those of you, may I say, who only come on Sunday morning. If you've got into that state, you better start coming Sunday night again. And come under the power of conviction and be made to wonder whether you're Christians or not. If you can handle it all lightly, and in this detached manner, in this purely objective way, oh, of course, I've been saved years ago. Now, I'm just, I'm a Bible student now. I'm one who's interested. you better examine the foundations, my friend. It's one of the most dangerous states the soul can ever know. Very well, let's leave it at that. Vital and important, though it is. Here's a man, you see, who's not troubled by philosophy as such, he believes the Bible to be the word of God inerrant and so on. And yes, but he's become so theoretical, he's in as bad a state as the men who brought in his philosophy. Let me hurry on. It follows from that. The second thing I mentioned this morning is intellectual pride. It's not the same thing as the last thing, but the last one tends to lead to It doesn't always lead to it, but it tends to. It's what the Bible calls being puffed up. Knowledge, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, knowledge puffeth up. And it does, of course. All sorts of knowledge puff up. But this one in particular. And so a man becomes proud of his knowledge and of his understanding. He becomes an authority. And in turn, of course, he despises others. That was one of the great troubles in Corinth, wasn't it? The strong brother, the weaker brother, that ignorant fellow, doesn't know anything. Oh, no doubt he's saved, but after all, what's he now? And there they were, these strong, enlightened, knowledgeable persons, despising the other brethren for whom Christ had died. And the apostle doesn't spare them. He deals with them. Knowledge he says, puffeth up. But love or charity builds up. That's what we need. Well, there it is, I needn't stay with that, the thing is so obvious, but God knows it's a terrible temptation. But you become proud of your knowledge of the Bible, proud of your knowledge of doctrine. And you see, while you're proud, you're showing quite plainly that you're not in contact with the person. Nobody can be proud in the presence of God. Nobody who really knows the Lord Jesus Christ can be puffed up. As the Apostle says, we know nothing yet as we ought to know. At best, we only see as in a glass darkly in this life and in this world. You have nothing to be proud of, my friend. No, no, and as James puts it, be not many masters, my brethren. Be careful, he says, that you're not setting up the standard of your own judgment. If you set yourself up as an authority, well, you expect to be judged as an authority. If you say, I know all about it very well, you'll be examined on that very basis. Oh, how tragic it is, how utterly foolish. Any pride or self-satisfaction in the presence of God is something which is quite unthinkable. We know nothing yet as we ought to know. We are but beginners, paddlers, on the very edge of this mighty, endless ocean of truth. Beware, let us beware of intellectual pride. It was the cause of the original sin. It has been the besetting sin of God's people ever since. Him that glorieth. Let him glory in the Lord, not in his knowledge of the doctrines, not in his knowledge about the Lord. Let him glory in the Lord himself and in nothing else. Very well, we've got to leave it. Let me go on. The next danger is, again, one which is dealt with in many places in the New Testament. The danger of having started in the Spirit to go back to the flesh. Now, there is, of course, the great theme of the Epistle to the Galatians in many ways. Galatians 3:3. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Now, it's a very big subject, this. I'm not proposing to stay with it because it would keep us to a great length of time. But I must indicate something of what it means here. Now, you see, the apostle was writing to Christian believers. This is one of the wiles of the devil with regard to a believer. It's this, that having started by seeing clearly that it is justification by faith only, and that everything in the Christian life is by faith, you quite unconsciously begin to slip back onto your works and to rely upon them in some shape or form. It's a very subtle temptation. Peter even tended to succumb to it as the result of those brethren who'd come down from Jerusalem and the apostles to withstand him to the face at Antioch, as he reminds us in Galatians 2. Now, this is the danger, you see, that you go back to the other. You've seen that at the beginning it's got to be entirely faith and trust, but then you begin to rely upon your good works and your activities and uh, what you are and your understanding and all these things. You bring in these fatal additions. Now, any kind of addition is something which is inevitably wrong. It was circumcision in that case. That was the whole teaching of those Judaizers. But it doesn't matter what it is. It might be, We mustn't drop back into that. You can't perfect this work On the flesh level, everything's on the level of the Spirit and it's always faith. Everything is ultimately by faith and under faith and we mustn't fall back from that. So we've got to examine ourselves in this respect. Do you realize, my friend, that when you're on your deathbed, you will be utterly, entirely and absolutely dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect work. All our righteousness is as filthy rags We must rely on nothing but upon him. Do all you can. Gain all the knowledge you can. Work as much as you can. Never rely upon any of them. We rely solely and entirely upon him. Let's go on to another aspect, therefore. And here is one again which one could illustrate so fully. The danger of being obsessed by one aspect of the truth. I use the term obsessed quite deliberately, because uh, while it falls short of a psychopathic obsession in the strict medical sense, there is no doubt about the reality of the obsession which the devil undoubtedly does give to certain people. What I mean is this, that he fixes your attention upon one aspect of the truth only. The truth is very large, it's very comprehensive, that is, one of the glories of the truth That it's so vast and profound in its height and depth and breadth and length. But the devil comes now and he gets you fixing on one thing only. And as you go through the Bible, you see nothing else. And you're always seeing it, always speaking about it, always writing about it, always underlining it, always putting your end. There's nothing here but this. And the poor man, whenever you hear him, it's always this. That's, of course, nothing but a manifestation of the wiles of the devil. It's very interesting to go about the country preaching and meeting different people and to listen to what they say, how they introduce themselves, how men betray themselves by what they say. They'll tell you all about themselves. And these people have their different obsessions. Some people seem to think that this gospel is nothing at all except about physical healing. They're always talking about it, and they rarely talk about anything else. Always come to this. Nothing matters but this. Others, of course, are obsessed. This may sound strange, but I use the term deliberately. Are obsessed about sanctification. They're not interested in anything else. They've lost the balance of the truth completely. They're always preaching their particular theory of sanctification. They've long since ceased to evangelize. It's this one thing. You shouldn't form movements with respect to particular doctrines. You're obviously going to lose your balance if you do. So often the people who attend meetings and gatherings concerned about sanctification because they feel they want this or that, what they really need, many of them, is to be converted. They don't even know the doctrine of justification. There should always be this balance, this fullness of the doctrine. It should be the whole counsel of God, and not just this one thing. There are no specialists in the spiritual realm. And the moment a man becomes one of these specialists, he's one of these obsessed people. Yes, I would add to the list, Calvinism. If your Calvinism becomes an obsession, it's wrong. If you're more interested in that than you are in your knowledge of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, you've got out of focus You're an obsessed person spiritually, and others who talk about deeper truths. What a sad thing it is, always a manifestation of some form of spiritual pride, and of course it's one of the simplest ways in which the devil can bring this uh, to pass. Because, you see, the narrower you are circled, the more expert you can become in it. The extent and the range of knowledge is smaller. And you there you know all about it, and you know much, much more than others. And so, you see, it immediately leads to this state of spiritual pride. God keep us from becoming obsessed Christians. Harping always on one note. Always the same thing. Never leaving it out. Always obtruding it. That's to be eccentric or to be obsessed. Then another group, and I'm simply giving you certain group, large headings which you can work out for yourselves. The next is the danger of becoming interested in externals only. There are many such people. The devil, of course, is so subtle. He comes to a man, a good man, a man who's very concerned to know about the truth, and he fixes him again on this particular matter. Machinery, church machinery, church government. And the people only talk about that. That seems to be everything. All that needs to happen to revive the church today is have a different form of church government. As if that were the central thing. And so they become interested in the mere machinery. Some become interested in mere traditionalism. There are people who get very excited about denominational allegiance. They don't even know why they belong to that denomination, except that they happen to be born in it. Their parents belong to it before They know no more than that, but they'll fight to the last ditch on their denomination and their grouping. That's sheer traditionalism. The devil has used that, oh, how frequently. People more interested in the church alignment than in the Lord himself, or even than in salvation itself. People then who become interested in history only. Terrible danger. There's nothing more fascinating than history. And yet, my dear friend, if you just become an historian, or are animated by nothing but an antiquarian interest, the devil has you safely asleep. It's a wonderful thing to read about the great saints of the past, but beware lest you live on their experiences. And don't have the same experience yourself. In other words, when you read the experiences of these great men, always ask yourself the question, Do I know that? Have I got that? Can I speak like this? If not, why not? But the devil will encourage you just to garner the knowledge. And because you enjoy reading about these things, you think you've got it. And of course, he's got you, safely deluded by his wiles. Well, all these things, you had it in the early church, of course. The Jews were in a very difficult position. I mean, the Jews would become Christians. They'd got this great tradition behind them of Judaism and the Old Testament teaching and doctrine, but now they'd become Christians, and these Gentiles had come in as Christians. It was very difficult for the Jew to realize that this man who just come in from paganism was really in exactly the same position as himself. See, that was what was happening, as I say, in Galatia and in other places, they couldn't shed something that they have brought in with them from the past. And the moment we bring in anything from that past, we are already in trouble. We are already in a very dangerous position. We must never allow traditionalism to govern us. That doesn't mean that we despise the past. Of course not. Let's learn from it, but let not become slaves to it. We must never become traditionalists. Thank God for every good custom and tradition. But the moment I worship tradition, I'm in a terribly dangerous state. We must be always open and always fresh in this way. We must be guided by the truth of the New Testament and not held by certain things that come from the past. This is so obvious in the life of the church today. They talk a great deal about union and ecumenicity. Well, why are they not all one? The answer is they're held by their traditions. Nothing else at all. And it can happen to us who are evangelical. We must beware of these traditions that don't really belong to the vital Christian life which we have, but are mere accidents of history or of circumstances. And that brings me to my last group this morning. And here is one which is prolific. Oh, the tragedies that one has seen as one has watched the devil in his wilds sidetracking people and taking them off at tangents. There's no more terrible thing than to become a spiritual crank. And so the devil uses his wiles to rob people of the riches of the Christian life and its glorious experiences. And not only that, through these people he does great harm to the cause of God. Because the thing is ridiculous. And any man with a modicum of common sense and of intelligence can see that. So the devil pays special attention to this. What do I mean? Well, I'm sorry to have to say it, but I mean some of the many vagaries with respect to prophetic teaching. People become sheer cranks over this. Take up one matter. This is emphasized as if this were everything. Always again talking about it. And they see nothing else, they're interested in nothing else, always in this question of prophetic teaching. What's going to happen? Relating it to the events of history and so on, and then having to change it because it doesn't come to pass, then taking up and on and on on it goes. And the whole thing is brought into disrepute and ridiculed before the eyes of the public. You are familiar, no doubt, with much of this. It's generally something different in each case. They've all got this particular emphasis, and this is everything. It is the thing. Now, you see the danger. We're all supposed to be interested and should be interested in prophetic teaching. But I have no doubt at all that it is the result of these side tracks and tangents and eccentricities which have been so obvious in the last 80 to 90 years in prophetic teaching That has led to the result that so many people in the church of God are not interested at all in prophetic teaching. They say, I don't want to become one of those people. The result is they evade the prophetic teaching altogether, which is equally bad, of course. But this is what the devil does. He comes, ah, oh, quite right, prophecy, especially today. Look at the facts. You see, he said that throughout the centuries. They say, we must be in the last times, mustn't we? Yes, but people said it equally 200 years ago, and even before that. They've been saying it throughout the centuries. But, ah, oh, but look at... Sir. Yeah, but they've always said that. And so, you see, it all becomes this one thing. you have off on a tangent. And the moment you go off on a tangent, you've left the great circle of the truth. Another one, just to illustrate what I mean. An interest in... Biblical numbers, numerics. I've seen many, many people completely sidetracked by this. Now, it's a a very interesting subject. There is no doubt meaning to the numbers that are used in the Bible. There's no question about that. Certain numbers are used in a given way. One cannot but see that there is an obvious meaning. Yes, but you see, what the devil comes is he comes and he encourages this. And you read books about it, and you're able to prove almost anything. You put down the number of the particular letter and you make your additions and your subtractions and you, you, you spend the whole of your time in just playing with biblical numbers. A terrible snare. Then let me add just another to be contemporary. And again, I'm speaking seriously and out of considerable pastoral experience and interest in different translations of the Bible. You know, the sort of men who you knew as a non-Christian, you see his conversion, and you see his beginning to grow. Then he gets under certain influences. And when he writes to you, he now adopts a new method. He uh, ends his letter, or perhaps he puts it as a postscript, a quotation of scripture. Then, but in brackets afterwards, Weymouth, or way or Moffat, or Phillips. Yes, or any one of them. Knox. And now I suppose it will be the new translation. RSV. RV. ARV. You see, he shows you at once, he's just lost. These are the wiles of the devil. He's interested in this, and he always comes, have you seen this new translation? This to me is really very tragic. I remember a man very well, a good Christian man, no question about it. But he'd carried over from his old unregenerate life into the new regenerate life a uh, habit like this. You see, the man of the world meets another man of the world and he says, have you heard this one? He tells him a story. Now this man uh, did it like this. He'd come along and he'd say, have you heard this one? And it was some very special translation of a verse of scripture somewhere. He lived on that he got that sort of mind and mentality. This was his consuming interest. He was always talking about this. I know many such men. And they're always interested in the exact meaning of some word they've just discovered. And this has changed everything for them. They wax eloquent and tremendously moved by this. It never occurs to them that uh, this obviously can't be as important as that. But you see, it is this terrible danger of turning the Bible into a sort of quiz book. It, it becomes just a matter of, Spiritual crossword puzzles—you're playing with words and with phrases and translations and with the mechanics. Oh, you've lost the main thing. You've become interested merely in the superficialities and the externals. Well, my friends, there are some of the wiles of the devil. I've seen many a wonderful Christian taken right off on a side track by these things, right off on a siding ceases to do any work, ceases to have any concern about the souls of the lost. Indeed, he even seems to be no longer concerned about knowing the Lord and enjoying fellowship with him. His whole interest is in one or the other of these matters. There's nothing more barren, more arid. Some of the driest periods in church history have been due to this kind of thing. And it happens to the individual. Very well, God preserve us from these things. I just mentioned my last word. I shall deal with it again under the heading of experience, but I've got to mention it under this heading of the intellectual and the approach through the mind. The whole problem connected with doubts. The devil can be very subtle at this point. He will plague a man with doubts. But he succeeds, of course, in this way by suggesting to them that the doubts are their doubts. And that doubts are always and invariably sinful. Now, that's a very subtle thing, isn't it? What the devil does is to conceal himself and to make you think that the doubts are arising in yourself and in your own mind. Whereas what is actually happening is that he is hurling at you what the apostle later calls the fiery darts that he possesses. He hurls doubts at people. But because they don't understand that they're from the devil and imagine that they're from themselves, they condemn themselves, they feel they're sinful, they doubt whether they're Christians at all. And so he gets them into bondage and in a state of terrible unhappiness and misery. So we have to be careful about that also. There is nothing sinful in being assailed by doubts. Some of the greatest saints have been attacked by doubts, hurled at them by the enemy, right to the end of their life. That isn't sin. They hated the thoughts. They rejected them. That's a proof that they're not theirs. It is the moment you begin to accept them and to agree with them that it becomes yours. But the devil, of course, tries to confuse the issue at that point. There is nothing sinful in and of itself in being assailed by doubts. Indeed, I've been tempted sometimes to say this. That the man who is assailed by doubts in that way by the devil is probably in a safer and a healthier condition than the kind of person who says, I've never had a single doubt worrying me since I was converted. There's surely something the matter with the second group. Because as certain as you're a Christian, the devil is going to attack you with these very wiles and with all his subtleties. And they'll come at you from every direction. Most of all, perhaps, when you're reading the scriptures or when you're praying. But don't allow him to persuade you that they're your doubts. If you hate them, if you reject them, and if, like Luther, you feel like rising up and hitting that inkpot at him who's besieging you and attacking you, it's all right, my friend. There's no sin involved at all. It's the devil coming to you. He went to the Son of God and said, if thou be the Son of God. No doubt he attacked him in the same way on the cross, saying, if God were your Father, would he allow you to be submitted to this? And so on. Very well, I say, I hope to take that up on some future occasion, but it had to be mentioned at this particular point. These are just some of the ways in which the devil, in all his subtlety and with his wiles, attacks and besieges the individual soul, well, realize that you're confronted by such an enemy. Take unto you, therefore, the whole armor of God. You'll need it every bit of it. We are told what it is in bits. Put it all on. Be fully clothed with it. The whole armor of God. Leave no unguarded place, because he'll come from anywhere. It is only as we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and clothed with this whole armor, that we shall be able to withstand the wiles of the devil. Amen.